Самару Ты душа любезный Совсем не под пару Ты цветочка кроза Родного Кавказа Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and our generous patrons who give us monthly contributions to help us keep this podcast going and to let us know that you like what we do and you're willing to invest in it. So becoming a patron is a really good way to show us how much you appreciate the show and what we do here, the types of knowledge we bring you. So if you like what we do and value it, please take a moment to become a patron by going to patreon.com slash yuranot or to yuranot.org and find that Patreon button and sign up and give us some money. So how are you doing, Rusana? I'm doing really well. How are you, Sean? I'm okay. Really busy, more busier than usual, like teaching, doing the documentary, doing this podcast. It seems like I'm quite fully loaded in terms of work. I'm just recovering from being really, really sick. So, ah. you know, life is has all these new colors. It's blossoming. It's springtime, pretty much. <laughs> so happy to be alive. <laughs> Did you have COVID? No, I, I had a really, really bad sore throat where I couldn't eat, couldn't like, could barely like drink liquids. And I for sure thought I had strep throat and blamed children and daycare. But it turned out that I'm negative. So I don't know, just a really bad virus. Wow. Yeah. Well, daycares are cesspools of disease. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the origin. Yeah. Um, you know, it's inevitable. So, well, this week we have an interview with Maria Lotsmanova about the genealogical research she's done on her repressed Mennonite ancestors. Have you ever done any genealogy research in your on your family? Actually, I have. Yes. I've always been kind of intrigued by my mom's side of the family because we know very little about them, not just my mom's side, so my mom's mother's family. We know that they lived in Eastern Ukraine and then in the late 20s, they ended up in the Jewish Autonomous Region in Birbijan. And so I always wondered, like, why would they go so far, like in the Far East? And the explanation always was, well, the elder sister, my, my grandmother's elder sister was already there with her husband, and that's why they decided to travel across the country to kind of join her, which makes sense. Like, you know how immigrant routes work, you know, someone lands somewhere and then the entire village or the whole community joins. Okay, but like, why the hell would the elder sister go there in the first place? <laughs> right. So there was of like it's turtles all the way down. And I thought, well, maybe they were Jewish. That's why they went there. And my mom would say like, no, no, my my mother always told us we're Ukrainian. We're like Ukrainian all, all the way to the core. But I had these dreams of going to the archive in Sumy, the region where they were from. But then the war broke out, the 2014 war. So I never got mm. a chance to go. But... I did some research online from stuff that I could get my hands on, including church records that, oh, wow. that are online thanks to the... The Mormons. Thanks to the Mormons, yes. They digitized a lot of yeah. church books in Ukraine. And that's where like, I learned a lot about the village and like how many kids in there. I mean, it's just basic information, but it's still yeah, very yeah, yeah. interesting. And one of the facts that I learned is that 
before they became Kaftunienka, they were Kaftun. So they changed their last name at some point in the 19th century, which was kind of, okay, interesting. But not, I mean, I haven't really learned that much on my own. Yeah. But recently, after we had that interview with uh, Sasha Sandrovich, I met up with him in Berkeley because he was visiting. And he told me so much more about my family. Oh, really? <laughs> Even though, I mean... How did he know anything about... Well, he, he just, he was really curious to hear about this Birabidjan connection. And so I mm -hmm. told everything I knew about my family history to him. And then he told me that this kind of journey from Ukraine, like European part of Russia, to the Far East, particularly to the Jewish autonomous region, is kind of a late motif in some of the Jewish literature that he read for his doctoral research. Right. He couldn't remember right away what the, the connection was. And then later he sent me an email telling me that in the novels that he has read, this kind of journey where it wasn't just my family, it was an entire village. What maybe not the entire village, but like a few families, at least 10 families that moved together to Bilbishan. Oh, wow. He said that this was very typical of Subotniki. Russian religious sect. So it's uh, ethnic Russians who adopted certain Jewish rituals, who practiced circumcision, I mean, certain food restrictions, right. certain other rituals. I'm not even sure. I haven't really read that much about it. But because it was an unrecognized religious sect, of course, they were hiding from the authorities and would never publicly, I mean, a lot of them would never publicly say that they were Subotniki. And so the idea is that a lot of them moved to the Jewish autonomous region, hoping that over there they would feel, since it was created for Jews, they would feel more religious freedoms, that they would be able to openly kind of practice their religion, their, you know, their beliefs, etc. But what happened was that it wasn't just them coming there. A lot of the Jewish people who migrated to Birbijan, they were communists, they were atheists. And so these Subotniki, they really stuck out as these white crows. And what ended up happening is that everybody who came from that little village, it's called Basivka, in the Sumui region, so everybody was executed in 1937, 1938, because I looked through the records of the memorial. Thank God for this organization. This is where we first learned what actually happened to my mom's grandfather because we never knew what happened to him. It was just like, poof, he was sent to Habarovsk and then we don't know what happened to him. And then in the 90s, my mom's colleague was like, hey, have you ever heard of Memorial? Maybe you should look through their records. They're online. Like now when I was doing my own research, I realized that it wasn't just my family. Everybody from that village was just like shot in Habarovsk, dead. And so the story about Subotniki, it helped me kind of understand, like, why would they be singled out? I don't think we'll ever know 100% what happened and were they really Subotniki or anything else. But at least it gives a certain kind of plausible theory of why they ended up there and, like, why they were shot. And, yeah, sorry, it's just like, it got very emotional. <laughs> 
Yeah, that that I mean, the first two things I want to say: the terror in Khabarovsk was particularly brutal. We talked about this with Mark Gamsa to some extent. And the other thing is that, of course, there's a very, very long centuries-old tradition of religious minorities fleeing to the peripheries of the Russian Empire and also the Soviet Union. So to the Caucasus, to the Far East. This is, of course, where old believers went to the Far East or went to Siberia. So it, it actually doesn't surprise me that you know, this religious group, and I like the name they're called Subotnik because of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I originally thought of the communist movement. I was like, oh, okay. So they, they did volunteer. Anyways. Maybe it, I it, could use this podcast for my personal benefit. And if any of our listeners know anything about this historical movement, this journey, and could help me learn more about my family history, please reach out. Please send me a note with some further directions. Well, I mean, I have to say the story you just told is very similar to, in some respects, to the story that Masha tells about her great-grandfather, who was a Mennonite and was arrested and exiled and then eventually shot. So there's it's an interesting parallel that you also have that kind of small religious group connection that she also has. Why don't we move on to the interview? Would you like to introduce Maria? Absolutely. Maria Lotsmanova previously worked at Moscow's Gulag History Museum, the Museum of Soviet Repressions, where she headed the Documentation Center. The staff there consult visitors on finding information in archives about people persecuted and convicted during the mass repressions in the USSR. Her own research focuses on the history of her repressed Mennonite ancestors, which was interrupted by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In August 2022, Masha moved to Pittsburgh to reconcile with her wife, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pittsburgh. Here's Maria Lotsmanova. Maria, it's really nice to talk to you since I saw this presentation you gave at Pitt several months ago. The work you've been doing in terms of genealogy is really fascinating to me because I've actually been doing a lot of genealogical research for a project I'm working on for a while. So I'm really curious to hear about how you do it on the Russian side. But just to start our, our conversation, why don't you introduce yourself? So my name is Maria Lotsmanova, and before I moved to the U.S., I lived in Moscow, Russia, and I used to work at the Glock History Museum there for three years, and I headed the documentation center there. And in August 2022, so last year, I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to reconcile with my wife, who is a postdoctoral fellow here at Pitt University. Mm -hmm. Since you brought up your work at the Gulag Museum, I'd like to ask you about that. So what exactly did you do there? So the documentation center is the department of the museum, which helps people look for investigation files of their repressed relatives. So basically, we consulted people how to reach the archive, how to request copies, how to prove you're related, where to look for these documents, and so on and so forth. And we also would be, I would say, morally supporting them because a lot of people, they still have this fear of not only dealing with archive alone, but dealing with this Secret Service archives. 
So we would also encourage them to do that and inspire them. And I was also inspiring them by my own experience. So this kind of work. And what kind of people come to the Gulag Museum looking for information about relatives? What kind of people did you encounter there? Actually, all kinds of people and all kinds of generation. And of course, their attitude to the question is different. And it really depends on their age. So I guess when this distance is bigger, then it's easier to approach this question. But we would also consult even children of repressed people and grandchildren, and they would be more scared and they would be more accurate about these questions. Yeah, younger people are more relaxed about that and they're more enthusiastic. But all kinds of people who just started their research, people who are like very into that and just have a tiny little question they they cannot handle by themselves. So they ask for some advice, maybe, or something. So all sorts of people, actually. Is there one memory that you have that kind of sticks with you of somebody coming, looking for information? I can't say I have any particular memory, but what I can say for sure that very often that would be very emotional meetings. And some people would even cry when they would tell their stories and we would be just trying to comfort them and giving them the support we can. And you could see that for many of those people, it would be very important just to share the story and to add something to this larger history, maybe to bring the copies of the documents to the museum, since it's a state museum. They just want this memory to be recognized. At the same time, there would be some people who would be angry at us because they would see us as a again, state museum, and they would see that the museum represents states, and the state gives a lot of complications when it comes to reaching these files. And so they would be angry at the archives. They would be angry at us as well. So they wouldn't make any difference. And they would just have this anger and they would want to bring it somewhere. And we would be like, okay, we're going <laughs> to listen to you and we're going to say sorry. And we would help if we could. But yeah, people would bring a lot of different emotions that what I really can point out of this work. Hmm. Let me ask about your own interest in researching your family. So you started to do this research how long ago? Actually, my first requests were made in 2015. So it was like four years before I started at the Gulag History Museum. And it was just a kind of curiosity thing, actually, because I just came across one of these instructions on the Internet, like how to request files from the archives on your repressed relatives. Mm -hmm. And I just knew that my great-grandfather was repressed. And basically there was, well, I knew just some facts and that was it. So I was, I was just curious, like, does it actually work? Can you actually request something from the archives? Do they actually have these archive files from the 30s still there? So, yeah, I just made this request, and to my surprise, I got responses from all three places I, I sent to. And since I already had all the documents to prove that I'm related, so I got the copies, actually, from the files. I was really impressed by that. And I have to say that, so in 
one of the files. My great-grandfather, when he was giving testimony, he was writing it by himself. And that was a very honest piece of uh, text. I was really impressed by this person. And this was the first point I got interested. But when, when I really got into that, all that genealogical, if you want to call it that work, it was mainly 2018, like a year before I entered the, the Glock History Museum. And so you're just you were just curious. So what kind of stories did you hear as a in your family that kind of sparked your curiosity? In the family, it was a really short kind of story that my grand grandfather was German, that they used to live in Crimea. They had a big house and somewhere in the 30s, they were repressed and sent to the north of Russia. And basically, that was it. But yeah, as I said, like when I actually read his direct speech, actually, that was a very human text, I would say, that would express feelings and concerns. And he was actually trying to explain himself in the situation, which was ridiculous from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. But he was trying to explain what he did wrong and like he was trying to excuse himself, and I was really touched by this text. So at some point, I just, I just shared it uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, at that point, Tatiana Stefanenko, who is a documentary director, and she also got really interested into that story, and she decided to create animated documentary about this story. So we kind of started to work on this project together and that what brought me to the further investigation mm -hmm. and when I started to investigate more uh, I just kind of discovered this whole story and I was so fascinated by that story that I just couldn't stop at some time yeah, yeah. That, that what actually brought me to the Glock Museum it seems to me and th this is just from poking around on the internet when I was looking for information about the person I'm researching, it seems that genealogy, is, it's quite popular in Russia. Mm -hmm. Is it? Is that the case? Yeah, we might say so. But I would also say that genealogy is popular in general. Yeah. It's becoming popular in general all over the world. And yeah, in Russia too. And I guess that on the one hand, it's just like technologists that came that help us to make the investigation much easier mm -hmm. nowadays, right? And uh, even in Russia, although Russian archival system is uh, far from perfection, but still there are some projects and archives dig digitalized more or less, so it helps us to start our research on the internet. And I also think that, on the other hand, people are encouraged to research by different actors by the Russian government, for example, which, well, they're trying to make this World War II mm, oh, thing right. popular. Yeah. So they encourage, for their own reasons, of course, Yes. but they're trying to make this topic popular. So they encourage people to do this research and they also provide instruments for that. For example, this military archive was digitalized and now there is a huge quite convenient database on the people who died in World War II or who, yeah, basically 
all, all people who participated, died, and so on and so forth. Also, there is a memorial who've done this amazing work with promoting the political repression topic and organizing this amazing event, or the return of the names, when people would stand in line for hours to read the names of the people who were repressed during the Stalin era. And that also got some attention, right? And people started asking themselves, maybe someone was repressed in my family as well, and so on and so forth. I didn't actually know that part of the memorialization and commemoration and the ideology around World War II memory actually had a genealogy component that was the state promoted. I'm actually a little, I'm not, it's weird. I'm not surprised to hear that. I just didn't, it makes a lot of sense. But I just didn't know. Yeah, I mean, so you probably heard about this Bismertny Polk yes. initiative. Mm-hmm. So that started as a, actually people's initiative. Mm-hmm. I guess somewhere in Siberia, but I'm not quite sure. I'm sorry about that. So this started as a, a common people initiative, but then the state actually institutionalized the initiative and stole it away in a way and started organizing this event the way they see it and um, to participate. Basically, what they urge you to do is to find information about your relative who died during the World War II, to print out his photograph, if you have the photograph, and you can research this information where and when he died in the database. And so that is how people feel this connection to this World War II and to these heroes. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, I mean, but unfortunately it's obvious that the state is using this victory in their own purposes. And they're kind of only showing the bright side of it, but not showing what the war actually is. It's all about heroism and the greatness of whatever. I don't know if you can answer this. It just popped into my head. Are there a lot of people who do genealogy on the pre-Soviet period? Because, you know, here in America, particularly African-Americans, right, there's a large interest in genealogy to locate relatives who were slaves. Is there a, a something in a, a trend in Russia where people are trying to look into their families back into the 19th century at least? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's probably less popular. I think that it really depends on the archival access, right? And those archives, the metric books, they're not so much accessible at the moment. I mean, this work is still going, but people do this kind of research, but I guess it's not that popular. Yeah, it's probably a lot harder because the Soviet system was so, so many documents are generated, whereas in the 19th century, regular people don't figure into documents clear enough to say, oh, that's my relative. I can recognize the name and some other characteristics. Yeah, actually, that's why the investigation files are so good for the genealogy, because a lot of ordinary people who were repressed during the Soviet repression, they were very well documented Mm -hmm. because of these events. Yeah. I mean... It's kind of a cruel irony. Yeah, cruel irony, exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Well, why don't you, well, let's talk more about your great-grandfather, Jacob Petrovich Janssen. Yeah. Who was he and uh, what stood out about his biography to you? 
So my great-grandfather, he was a, well, I have this huge Mennonite ancestors branch. So he was from this part. Those were German Mennonites living in Crimea and a little bit earlier in southeastern Ukraine at that time. So basically, you can call them like peasants probably, yeah, but in Soviet terms, those would be kulaks. So my great-great-grandfather, he was a landowner. Uh, he had a quite a huge land in Crimea, and which he lost in 20s. And my great-grandfather, he was born in the end of the 19th century. So by the time he was old enough, he was living quite a simple life, and he had a small uh, piece of land, and he lived with his family in Crimea. In 20s, I think he was really like a worker, like a builder or something like that. But still, he was considered to be the son of the Kulak, of the former Kulak. And basically, because of that, in the beginning of the 30s, his property was seized, and he was sent to the north of Russia. Arhangelsk region. That's where my grandmother was born. Mm. She was the last one, the, the youngest one in the family. And she was born already there. And they lived there on a special settlement for a while until in 1933, he was sentenced to five years of labor camp. And he was sent to Siberia. He came back three and a half years later, and but in 1938, he was sentenced to death penalty, and he was shot there. And the family lived there for a while, but then with the beginning of the World War II, they were sent more to the east, mm. eastish part of Russia, since they were Germans. And were they forced it, relocated or yeah, evacuated? Yeah, they, yeah, they were forced. Forced relocated because yeah, they were yeah. Germans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were Germans. So they stayed in this status till the middle of 50s, mm -hmm. until they got passports, actually, and they could yeah. actually travel around freely. But yeah, as I said, my grand-grandfather, he appeared to be a very interesting man to me through this testimony he gave. And in the first case, in 1930, he seems to be this very religious man who is trying to excuse himself. And he's saying these kind of words that very religious kind of words that all the authority comes from God, so we should not struggle. We should not argue, basically. Oh, that's, I see. That's what with the authorities. He, with the authorities, ah, yeah. I we see. should follow their rules and so on. I see. But in a way, testimony changes in 1938. Well, according to the testimonies of the people who talked to him, he actually seems to be the person that understands what's happening and then that the Soviet uh, government is actually like a, a, just a group of bandits mm -hmm. and they're actually afraid of everything. That's why they're putting ev everyone who is against uh, into the jail and he kind of actually understands what's going on. Yeah, so yeah, he seemed to be a clever guy. I mean, it's amazing he survived being arrested, dequalized and then you know, rearrested and then rearrested again, right? It's amazing he lived through all of that. Well, uh, until 1938. Yeah, until, right, until, right. Right. But, well, yeah, actually, that's the in, in the second file in 1938 when 
Some of the victims say that he actually is quite clever and he understands what's going on and he's actually against mm-hmm. the Bolsheviks. So, What about his religion? Well, you said in the first testimony he has a lot of religious language. In, in the later testimony, is it still there or is it? Not really, but I think it also depends on the cases themselves. The bureaucracy changed, so to say, because the cases in 1933, they're more extended because there was more time and there are more papers there, there are more testimonies. While in 1938, which is the Great Terror, and there were a lot of cases, and they were just going one by another, so the testimonies are quite short. I guess that they just didn't have enough time to write and talk. So yeah, it was kind of a production line of, yeah, of cases, yeah, just, yeah. you know, trial in an abstention, whatever, whatever. Yeah. I'm curious. So you do all this research. What does your family say when you reveal some of this information? Well, different things. As I was doing this research, I had to contact different relatives, like more distant relatives, actually, like uh, my mother's cousins, because I got interested into, so my great-grandfather's family, so it's my great-grandfather, grand-grandmother, and five of their children. And so I decided to collect all their cases. But since everyone, except for my great-grandfather, they were just special settlers, Mm And this is a different kind of repression and uh, a different kind of bureaucracy. So to my surprise, those cases were closed because these people still were not rehabilitated for these particular cases. And to get access to these cases, I actually had to rehabilitate these people. And... Because in Russian law, we have like different types of repression, so to say, and different people were rehabilitated as children of the repressed man, but they were not rehabilitated as being adults, being on this special settlements. And for them, it didn't actually matter because they got their papers and they were okay. But for me, it mattered because I couldn't access the cases. So to rehabilitate these people, I had to prove that I'm related. So I had to contact all the cousins and so on. And these cousins, some live in Germany, some live in uh, Kyrgyzstan, some live in Russia, all over. So I had to contact them and the reactions were different. But in the very end, I've managed to convince them all that it would be good to get these archival cases because, well, I had this feeling that If I don't do that, nobody will because it's really complicated. And I was already at that point that I just had to make the last step, prove that I'm related and that's it. So in the very end, they were all grateful and they learned some new information for sure because it was a big blind spot in our family history. And they were grateful to me that I actually have done this work. But some of them, they were scared. Because I believe that they had their own history with the secret services. Well, not secret services, but like just Soviet Union in general. And they didn't want to mess up with it again. Yeah. I mean, some people are like, why would you want to dig up this past bad stuff? What is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they don't either. Sometimes people don't want to know for whatever reason, but also people don't want to They don't feel safe. They don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did any of them like 
discourage you at all? Because they were like, why would you want to dig up all of this horrible stuff that happened in the past? Or Well, I would say that some of them would be unsure. Mm-hmm. And it took some time for me to convince them to give the documents. But I would say that mostly people, relatives, they supported me. What about you? How, how has this changed you? in how you understand yourself, how you understand your family. What has it given you this research? Besides just finding out about past relatives, what about for your identity? Well, I would say that it changed my life completely, actually, because you see, when I'm doing this, and this is still the way I feel about it, I just kind of follow my intuition mostly, you know, listen to my heart, if you want to say so. I just had this urge and just had this feeling that I want to do this. I was doing it, and while I was doing it, my life was changing dramatically. I mean, because of my research, I actually came to the Gluck History Museum, and I was offered a job there, and I never thought of working at the museum before, and I actually I fell in love with the place, and those three, three years were one of the best in my life. I met my people there, I met my wife there, and even now, as I moved to States, I would say that this is the story that uh, kind of supports me still, because, well, first of all, Mennonites turned out to be very international people. In Russia, Mennonites are not well-known, actually, but like here in States or even more in Canada... There are huge communities, and I already had a chance to meet some of those people, and those are great fellas. And uh, so this is the background I'm relying on, and this is the background I can actually introduce myself with. Mm-hmm. But what about your own understanding? You know, like, sure, your life kind of changed. Now this is your job in a way. (laughs) But what about your self-understanding? I would say that it made me be more honest with myself and with people. And it made me braver in a way, because I guess that would be the characteristics I needed to actually conduct this research and this journey. First of all, this kind of research when it involves a lot of dark pages of your country, history, it surely makes you look at this history differently, kind of helps you to actually reconsider it. And you know, you can't avoid seeing parallels to the contemporary situation. And in terms of this Mennonite side, because I was also asked about that. I don't feel myself very religious or things like that, but there are certainly some things that I like about these people. Well, first of all, the main rule of their religion, so to say, is they're against the war. Yeah, they're pacifists. They're pacifists, yeah, in any terms, and they wouldn't even take guns in hands. And, for example, my great-grandfather... As the Russian government at that time, they were trying to include Mennonites into army service. So he would become a a male nurse during the World War I. And that was uh, his kind of service. And many people did that. 
So this is what I like about them very much. This is something that is close to my heart. And I guess that I'm still exploring mm-hmm. this side of my ancestors. Did your family, before you started to do this research, was there knowledge of a Mennonite ancestry in uh, your family? There was, but my ancestors, they were also going through all these Soviet repressions mm-hmm. because of that. Yes. And some of the children, they kept their faith. Some of them rejected it in a way because they felt it's going to be safer. Some of them even entered the Communist Party. So my grandmother, she didn't really practice her religion a lot, but I know that she was in contact with her brothers and sisters. And that is also something that is very natural to the Mennonite community. And basically nothing actually was transferred to me and I had to learn by myself what is that actually to be a Mennonite. And uh, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know much about that. Yeah. No, not a lot of people do because there's such a small community spread out yeah. over the world, right? Because mm-hmm. they left Germany because of their religious practices, if I remember. Well, they're, yeah, they're basically, they are this kind of instant immigrants yeah. because they're like, mo- they're moving a lot all the time because of their religion. And finally, what's next? So you've done this research on your grandfather. Are you expanding it to other family members or? Well, at the moment, yes, I do. And actually, I started. So I was trying to collect as much information about my great-grandfather as, as I could. So I would actually look for this information in his brother's or sister's files who were also repressed. So I actually collected this archive for, I don't know, 20 people or so, uh, my distant relatives. And um, my recent idea is that I actually want to have it digitalized in a way because now it's just kept on my laptop and I I really want to structure it. I really want to make it accessible. I really want to work with it more thoroughly and maybe establish some new links and understand like the general picture so to say. But I'll see what's next because I'm really actually, I'm really sorry that I didn't spend enough time working in the Crimea archive because they do have still, they do have a lot of files that relates to my ancestors and I'd love to go through those files and uh, I would love to actually visit some places. I mean, I went to Crimea once and I visited some of the most important mm-hmm. spots. For example, I found a house of my great-great-great-great-grandfather, the landlord, the landowner. The house is still there, so it's like 100 years old. It's a kind of a museum now, but it doesn't say much about my grand-grandfather, unfortunately. I actually, I would love to do more of this kind of field work, but as we know... It's not possible right now, so yeah. I guess I'll have to wait. Hopefully, I'll have enough time and resources to digitalize what I have now, and basically, I'll see where it brings me. That was Maria Lotsmanova. 
Maria Lotsmanova previously worked at Moscow's Gulag History Museum, the Museum of Soviet Repressions, where she headed the Documentation Center. The staff there consult visitors on finding information in archives about people prosecuted and convicted during the mass repressions in the USSR. Her own research focuses on the history of her repressed Mennonite ancestors, which was interrupted by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In August 2022, Maria moved to Pittsburgh to reconcile with her wife, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you very much, Rusana. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. This episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper at PodCuts Editing. If you have some audio that needs to be professionally edited and mixed, Daniel is your guy. This is the reason why we at the Eurasian Knot have partnered with PodCuts Editing to make our workflow better, to make the show sound more professional. If you have any work for Daniel, go to podcutsediting.com and he'll give you your first edit free of charge. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Like I said at the beginning, if you really want to let us know how much you value the show, become a patron. Put your money where your heart is, and it allows us to do things, buy good equipment, get the podcast professionally mixed and edited by people like Daniel. So please become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Euronaut. And if you don't have any money then please help us out by spreading the word on social media. Share the show, tell your friends and family about it. More listeners, the better. So until next time, bye. Bye.